You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 55. That's on page 742 in the Bibles available on the back. Isaiah 55. We're going to be looking at this entire uh, chapter this morning. It's a unit in the prophecy uh, from Isaiah. So hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on that which is not bread and your labor on that which does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not. And nations that you do not know, that do not know you, will hasten to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. For he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the evil man his thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher from the earth, are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and that all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow up the pine tree. Instead of the briars, myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign, which will not be destroyed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can gather here and hear your word. But we come confessing, dear Lord, that we have ears that don't hear. So we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us. That your spirit would take your word and plant it deep into our hearts. That we might not only understand it, but that we might rejoice in the truths of your word. That we might allow it to change our lives so that we might become conformed to you, our God and Redeemer and King. These things we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. 
At the beginning of the new year, it's always good to kind of reflect on the past year and the year ahead. And I'm not going to repeat what David said on Wednesday for those of you who are here uh, for the New Year's service. He went over a whole list of New Year's resolutions that you could adopt or adapt as you see fit. Naturally, none of us knows what's going to happen in this coming year, what it's going to bring. Some of us look over the past year, and I can think of various individuals, and it was a great year. Amazing things happened in your lives, and you're glad for that year and look forward to another year. Others of you, I know, are wounded. You've been crushed. There's been debilitating things that have happened to you over the past year, and it hurts. You look back over that year, and you're glad it's done, and pray that by God's grace, the next year is going to be a better year. But it's a good time as we begin the year to reflect on what God has done, what he will do. And the older I get, the more I realize I'm not going to get done what I'd like to get done. I always have grand plans, and then at the end of the day, I think, boy, you got about a fourth done of what you thought you'd get done. And so New Year's resolutions don't really help, because at the end of the year, I look back and I go, why did I even bother? And the older I get, I also am starting to begin to get an idea that what I really need is more of the gospel. I need to understand more that it's all about God's grace. I need to let God's grace just overwhelm me. And so that's my prayer as we look at this passage this morning, that we would be amazed at God's grace, that we would be motivated by and live out of the gospel the wonder of the finished work of Christ. The gospel needs to grip us, to overwhelm us, to transform us and characterize our actions and thoughts, especially our interactions with each other. We need to be a people of God's grace, a people of the gospel of grace. So as we begin to move into 2014, I'd like to give you a few thoughts out of this passage from Isaiah 55, which will hopefully help to keep you centered on the gospel and all that you say and do. But before we begin to look at the specifics of this passage, we need to understand a little bit about prophets and prophecy. Because otherwise you're going to get lost in, in, in this book and in this particular passage out of the book of Isaiah. Their primary function of prophets was to represent God before the people, to remind God's people of what God expected of them, revealing his will. It wasn't to foretell all these future events. They did do that, but their primary task was to say to the people of God, here's the covenant, keep the covenant. If you don't, judgment is coming. If you do, there's blessings to be had. But they reminded God's people, they were covenant lawyers, if you will, warning the people that if they continued to sin and break the covenant, destruction was coming, the destruction of Jerusalem and exile, in particular in the book of Isaiah. They weren't all doom and gloom, however. They also foretold the coming of the Messiah and the wonders of God's grace, which would restore God's people. The prophets pictured not only the return of the people of God to the land after the exile, But they pictured the great ingathering, the people from every tribe and nation and tongue. That's us. A people to become God's people that the Messiah would accomplish when he came. It was a spectacular picture of a renewed creation, 
a new heavens and a new earth in which the people would truly love God and worship him forever. And we see both of these aspects in the message of the prophet in the book of Isaiah. We see the destruction of Jerusalem, the threat of exile. And you have to understand, when Isaiah wrote 18 years prior to the time he started, the northern tribes had been invaded by the Assyrians in 722 and taken into exile. So the people hearing Isaiah knew what exile was like. They knew the horrors of destruction of war. And Isaiah's message was, if you don't repent, that's going to happen to you. That's the bulk of what Isaiah is saying. And yet in the midst of all of that comes this chapter. A chapter where he talks about God's grace and the amazing character of what God's going to do to restore his people. And so we see both of these things happening people of God deserved God's wrath. And here comes a message of grace. And we need to set the full picture to understand what Isaiah is saying here. It's not as though God just kind of randomly says, I'm going to be violent and I'm going to destroy these people. That's the picture we get sometimes of the God of the Old Testament. All I was interested in was crushing people. You have to understand this was a God who had redeemed these people out of Egypt who had been with them and provided them in the wilderness, had provided them with blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And since they entered into the land, and there was a king over Israel at the time of David, for 250 plus years, he had been warning them, if you don't stop sinning, judgment is going to come. He had sent the prophets to warn them time and time again. And yet the people of God continued to rebel against him. And so that's why the message of Isaiah was one of judgment to come. What were the people doing? If you look through the the book of Isaiah, they were doing three things in particular that he brings to our attention. First of all, necromancy. They were going and worshiping the spirits of the dead, seeking information from them, something strictly forbidden by God's word. They were involved in idolatry. They had accepted foreign deities and were worshiping them. Idols that people made rather than the living God. They had turned their back on God. And thirdly, I think even more significantly was the fact that they were worshiping the true God in the wrong way. They were continuing with the sacrifices. They were going to the temple in Jerusalem and doing all the right things. But for all the wrong reasons. Their heart wasn't in it. They were just playing at religion. Their lips served God, but their hearts were far from him. And so judgment was to come. God couldn't tolerate that sin any longer. But in the midst of that, it's not just doom and gloom. Isaiah gives us this picture of this restoration that the Messiah is going to bring. Here in Isaiah 55, we catch a glimpse of the wonder of that restoration. That Christ is going to accomplish. This chapter is the gospel in Old Testament terms. And you have to understand that. Don't read this and think, oh, I'm going to have to hear the same things you hear in the New Testament. But this is the same gospel that you hear in the New Testament. Just put to us in Old Testament terms. And as we look at this, the passage can be divided into basically three sections. Two of them include a brief look to the future restoration that God will accomplish. First of all, there's the delight in the gospel. Secondly, there's the response to the gospel. And thirdly, there's the impact to the gospel. 
So first of all, the delight of the gospel. That's in Isaiah chapter 1, or chapter 55, verses 1 and 2. First here we see the invitation. Isaiah opens here with this extended invitation to come four times. He says, come. So we get the point. It's not a, you know, if you'd like to, this is an urgent plea by the prophet saying, come. There's eagerness here in what he's saying. It's not a threat. It says, come. This is for your own good. This is a come of joy and anticipation. Don't delay. Come. And as I've said, this message in Isaiah 55 is really the gospel in Old Testament terms. So when we hear these words come, repeated over and over again, we have to hear the words of Christ in Matthew 11, 28, where he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the same come that Christ issues when he comes in the New Testament. Come to me. That's what God wants of us. The invitation of the gospel is to come. Come to Christ. And who's invited for this? Who's being invited to come? All who are thirsty. All who have no money. And here in Scotland, it's hard, to, at least for me, to imagine someone being really thirsty. We have so much rain here. Not that you've not noticed that at all, but as a foreigner, I do. There's this tremendous, fantastic water everywhere here in Scotland. But Isaiah was writing to people that lived on the edge of the desert. You had to have water or you died. And when you got thirsty, it was serious. And so he's saying to people who are thirsty, who are on the verge of collapse, come, get water so that you can live. That's this invitation. It's an invitation to drink of Christ. Of course, Isaiah is not talking about physical thirst. He's talking about a deep personal need. He's calling those to come who feel an intense need inside them that's crying out to be satisfied. It isn't merely those who are thirsty who are invited to come. It's those who have no means to pay for to have their thirst quenched. Again, it's hard for us to imagine here in the West, but I know that because I've been in Jerusalem where they have water peddlers. Guys go around with jugs of water and you can buy water from them because it's not just available everywhere. But what happens if you're thirsty and you don't have anything to pay for the water? But the invitation of the gospel is come, buy without money. Have you ever felt thirsty? Maybe things in your life this past year have made you thirsty. There's an intense need, pain, struggles. Do you have the resources to satisfy that need? Can you purchase satisfaction? It's those people that need to hear the gospel. All of us who have that need, we need to come. If we're thirsty, if we have no money with which to purchase anything, then come to Christ. Drink deeply of the gospel of grace and be satisfied. And what's the purpose of this invitation? It's exactly that the people who are thirsty and without means are to come to Christ. Come to the waters, plural in Hebrew, not just a little 
glass of water, that's it. But the picture here is of the source of waters, just in abundance. And we're to come to the source of water to quench our thirst, come and buy and eat to satisfy our need. And we're to come and buy milk and wine. It's not just water that will get you through the day. Wine speaks of joy and happiness. Milk in the ancient Near East was a, a picture of abundance, opulence almost. That's what God is offering us in the gospel. Not just enough to get by, but wine and milk. And we're to come and we're to buy those things. And look what the passage says, without money, without cost. We're to buy these things without money and cost. It's free. And that's the wonder of the gospel. It isn't up to us. It isn't up to what we can do, who we are or who we're not. It's all about what Christ has done on our behalf. It's all of grace. Drink deeply of that wonderful truth. Feast on it. Delight in it. Come to the gospel of Christ. Isaiah portrays a useless alternative He says, why do we spend your money on what is not bread and your your labor on what does not satisfy? Here we see the alternative of coming to Christ. Being satisfied with what he has done. The word that's used here for spend is a picture of an ancient balance scale where people put weights on this side to counterbalance things. That's the idea. What are you trying to balance your life out with? To bring satisfaction in your life. Is it really satisfying? That's what Isaiah is asking. The word that's used here for satisfy means to produce abundance. To satisfy in abundance. Do your efforts really satisfy? How much of our expenditures of money, of time, of energy, are on that which really doesn't satisfy? Just take a quick personal inventory. Think back over this past week, let alone over the past year, and recall how much of what you've done, how much of what you've expended in finances and energy, how much has that really brought satisfaction to you? We're busy trying all kinds of things to satisfy our thirst and hunger, but all to no avail. We need to come to Christ. We need to drink of him who is the source of living water. We need to feast on him who is the bread of life. Delight in the gospel, the good news. That it's not what we do, but what Christ has already done. That has satisfied the Father and will satisfy us. Truly satisfy us. And what's being offered to us? We're to come and we're to listen. Listen to me. Here, finally, is what the invitation is all about. It's about coming to the Lord and listening to him, hearing what he has to say in his word, the gospel. Hear him say that we are his children, loved beyond comprehension, cherished since before the foundation of the world, cherished so much that God had to send his only son to take our place and die for us. And we need to hear him say Those things, as we look to Christ and what he's done, there's where we hear the voice of God. Jesus is the word of God come in the flesh. And it says we see him and what he's done. 
that we know the love of the Father for us, the wonder of the gospel. We need to hear him say that our sins are forgiven, that we're cherished by the Father. But Isaiah says that we're to eat what's good and delight in the richest fare. He continues the metaphor of physical eating. And this is quite politically incorrect what he says here. Because literally he's saying that we delight ourselves in fat. In the ancient Near East, if you got the fat, that was the, the, the good part of the, the meal. That's why it's interesting that in the sacrifices that were offered up to the Lord, it was mostly fat that was offered up. That was the most valuable thing that you could offer up to God. But here he's saying we delight ourselves in fat. I don't think I would delight myself in that. I'd rather have the steak part of it. But that's what he's saying here. Delight yourself in the abundant things. He's not talking about mere, bare, minimal existence. We're to delight ourselves in what he has provided. Eat what's good and delight in the richest of fare. We are to hear the Lord and eat of what he has to offer. Like we sang this morning here in Psalm 34. Taste of the Lord. See that he's good. But how much do we really, I mean really, delight in the gospel? How much do we hunger and thirst for the message of grace? How much do we think about it and talk about it with other believers? And I'm not talking about evangelism. We should do that. But when we get together, is it the gospel, the wonder of what Jesus has done? That's the topic of our conversation. It just excites us, motivates us. Is that what we talk about and love to talk about? Because it's on our hearts. That's what it means here, to delight ourselves in the gospel. How much does the wonder of how Christ has treated us in the abundance of his grace spill over into the way we treat each other? Is there an atmosphere, a fragrance of grace amongst us that others notice about us? We need to delight in the gospel ourselves and let it overwhelm us with the abundance of God's grace. Let it permeate every part of us and begin to take hold of our lives. But then comes in verses uh, 3 through 5. Let's see if I can get this to work. There we go. This picture of future restoration. I think we've got what Isaiah is talking about in us delighting in the gospel. And then comes this message. He continues with a theme of listening to the Lord and it expands on it by way of saying, give ear and come to me and listen that you may live. This is all about that we could live before the Lord. And as we hear the gospel, that although we are rebellious sinners deserving of death, God sent his only son to die and take our place, offering salvation to all who believe in him, who trust in his finished work. As we begin to hear that, The gospel is about life, even though we deserve death. But then Isaiah mentions here the Davidic covenant. And I wish we had time to develop this more. But this is an idea going back to the time of David, where God promised David that there would always be a descendant of David on the throne and that God would dwell in Jerusalem. But Isaiah has been telling the people of God, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and you're going to be taken into exile. So they're faced with the idea of, what's up? Has God turned his back on us? Is the covenant going to be no more? 
We're going to be abandoned because of our sin. And Isaiah's message here, the gospel, is no. God's covenant remains in place. This everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. It's God saying, I'm going to remain faithful to the covenant. I'm going to keep my promises. It's a, it's a covenant of grace that God made with David. And God is saying here through Isaiah to the people of God and to us, his grace remains true through matter, no matter what happens. He says that it's, he says that it's in accordance with his covenant faithfulness and love. The gospel, the good news of God's saving grace is part of this future restoration. And how is this going to happen? It's going to, be, it's going to happen with the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah here is using prophetic language and he begins to address the Messiah. I have made him a witness to the peoples. He's addressing the Messiah who would come as though he was already there. This is prophetic vision, laying hold of the promises of God and seeing them as a reality. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to be a witness. He's going to declare God's will to the people. He's going to make known who God is. That's what Jesus came to do, to show us who God is. And how did he do that? He went to the cross. He died in our place. That's who our God is. And Jesus is the witness that says, this is who God is. This is what he's like. And I have to die to show you what he's like because of your sin. But then he also goes on and says that he's going to be a ruler. He shows us that the Messiah is going to come and reign and rule. But this isn't the usual word for rule, exercising authority and dominion. It's the idea that one who comes and gives counsel, who advises and is therefore a leader. The other word that he uses here as a commander is the word that's used of God giving commands like he did when he created the world. When God speaks and all that is comes into being. The Messiah is going to come. And he's going to be a ruler and a commander and a witness to who God is. And make God known and establish his kingdom. And who will populate this kingdom that the Messiah is going to bring about? Verse 5 begins with two parallel expressions in Hebrew. You will summon nations you don't know. Nations you don't know will come running to you, literally. Nations are repeated. These are non-Jews. When the Messiah comes, it's going to be opened up to every tribe and nation and tongue. And they're going to be made known They're going to have the gospel made known to them such that they're going to be summoned and come running to the Messiah. It's a remarkable picture of God going outside of the racial descendants of Abraham to gather in the nations through his descendant of David, the Messiah. And thanks be to God, those of us who are non-Jews, who are Gentiles, that's us. We're included in this expanse of the gospel that the Messiah would accomplish. And what's the cause of this? It's because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. The reason basically is because God's going to do it. Because he's the Holy One of Israel and he's going to do this. It's his doing. The Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, causing the nations to run to the Messiah. 
because he has endowed the Messiah with splendor. It's a picture of the restoration of what the Messiah will bring about when he comes and announces the gospel, the good news, through what he does. Then we come to verses 6 and 7, and there we have the response of the gospel, our response and God's response. First of all, we're to seek the Lord while he may be found. The word that's used here for seek means to resort to, to frequent, to go often, to search out. That's coupled with while he may be found. Now, literally, the Hebrew doesn't make sense if you translate it literally into English. It's in to be found. What's that mean in English? (laughs) The notion conveyed is, first of all, passive. That is, it's one that God allows himself to be found. And you can look at Isaiah 65, verse 1, where God expands on that idea. Secondly, it's that... It is a finding of the Lord to be present and sufficient. That is, it's not a treasure hunt finding something that you don't know before, but rather a saying of God, he's with me, and I'm satisfied with that. That's what this idea is conveying here. The point is that even our response to the gospel, seeking the Lord, is a result of God's enabling grace. He allows us to turn to him and find him in our need. It's amazing. It's not just when we realize, oh, I have a need, now I go through and I'm going to seek God and I'm going to do these things. That's not what Isaiah is saying here. He's saying that even when God brings us to the place where we realize our need, he enables us to turn to him and seek him by his grace. So even that response is something that the grace of God produces in us. And we're to call on him when he's near. We're to call for help. We're to cry out to God in our need when we're thirsty, when we have no means to buy. Cry out to him. It's used often in the scriptures of one who worships God. So here's a picture of one who is worshiping God. And again, this while he is near, literally, if you translate that into English, it doesn't make sense. But the idea is that when God has drawn near to us, we're to call on him, worship him, cry out to him in our need. Being near, with, when God is near, it conveys the idea of salvation. The idea Isaiah is conveying here is that our response to the gospel is to simply worship the Lord, to come into his presence and to delight in him. That's what the gospel does It causes us to worship Christ. It's a calling out to him to save us and a delighting in him and the salvation that he's provided. Seeking and calling on the Lord is an expression of active faith in Christ. And that's a response to the gospel. But that's then coupled with let the wicked forsake his ways. It's talking about us. A wicked one here is one who commits a crime and hence is deserving of punishment who is guilty of a hostility or sin against God. And Isaiah says, let them forsake to depart from, to leave behind, to give up, to deny their ways, their manner of life. The gospel isn't about God accepting us as we are, unchanged, continuing in the same old sinful ways. It involves change, 
A change which only the grace of God can work in us, but a change nonetheless. Our response to the gospel is to forsake our old sinful ways of life, relying on the grace of God to become more and more like Christ. Then there's a parallel expression, and left and let the unrighteous forsake their thoughts. Basically, it's the same thing, except for here, it's intensified in the sense of it's not just external behavior that God wants changed. He wants our thoughts to change, our plans, our inmost desires, our heart motivations need to change. That's what he's after here when the gospel touches our lives, that our hearts be changed, that our thoughts be changed. Here the idea is the same thing, but our heart attitudes, our priorities and plans have to reflect the grace of God at work in us. And then he says, let them turn to the Lord. This forsaking needs to be joined to turning to the Lord. In Scripture, there's always a turning from something and turning to something else. So if we leave sinful ways and thoughts, we need to turn to the Lord. And what happens when we turn to the Lord our God? If I was God, I'd be there saying, I told you so, now you're going to get yours. (laughs) That's the way it would be if I was God. Thanks be to God, he's not like us. Look at what it says here. He will have mercy on them. This is God's response when we turn to him. He's a God of mercy, a God of compassion. The root word that's used here is the word that we get in Hebrew for womb. It's a place of safety, a place of nurture. A place of tenderness. This is what God is going to show us when we turn to him. It speaks of the amazing character of God's grace once more. It's one of God's attributes. He's compassionate. Here we return to the gospel of God's grace. Mercy is shown even though we deserve wrath. This is what God eagerly does. Do you hear what Isaiah is saying here? The Lord God longs to show you his compassion. So what's keeping us from turning to him? Why do we so often suffer trying to struggle through on our own? The gospel is a call to turn to the Lord and find compassion in him, which he is eager to bestow upon us. Over and over again in the gospels, we read about Christ feeling or sensing compassion on the crowds. That's what he came to do, to show us the compassion of God. He has come to show us that. That's the gospel. It's God's response when we turn to him in our need. He pours out his unending grace upon us, his compassion, over and over again. That's the wonder of the gospel. It's the wonder of God's amazing grace. But it doesn't end there. Isaiah goes on and says, for he will freely pardon. Here, the word that's used means abundantly. This is not just the bare minimum again. It's abundance. God isn't stingy with his grace. He's eager to pour it out on us. And the word that's used here for pardon, there's lots of different Hebrew words that are used for pardon. This one emphasizes that God simply pardons and forgives. It speaks of God's eagerness to forgive. He's not like other people. When you go up to them and say, would you forgive me for that? And they go, well, let me think about it a while. (laughs) And then you know they're always going to bring it up again. When God pardons, it's gone. (laughs) 
He'll never bring it up again. And think about all of the sin which you engage in day by day, moment by moment. God pardons that. And he's eager to do that. That's who he is. Because he's a God of grace. It speaks of God's eagerness to forgive. So what are we waiting for? Turn to him. Seek him. Forsake your ways and your thoughts that he might pour out on you the abundance of his redeeming grace and his compassion. And then lastly, we need to look at the, com- the impact of the gospel. And Isaiah does this by way of two different things. This is in the next verses. When I, I don't know about you, but when sometimes I begin to think about the wonder of God's redeeming grace in the gospel, my little brain starts to short circuit. I start remembering all of the sins that I've committed. I think, why would Christ go to the cross for me? There's no reason. And so my brain just can't get around that. And it becomes overwhelming. And I just wonder, why? Why did Christ come to die for me? And I think that's why Isaiah goes on the way he does and says what he does in verses 8 through 11. He wants us to understand the impact of the gospel. And he does this by focusing our attention on two aspects of the surpassing character of the word of God. And by giving us another glimpse of the future restoration that the Messiah will bring about because of the gospel. He starts off here by saying, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. He picks up on this idea of thoughts and ways that he's already talked about in verse 7. And here he contrasts God's thoughts and ways and humans' thoughts and ways. Too often we think of God basically just like us, only just a wee bit different, but basically like us. By degree, he might be a little bit better or bigger or something, but not really all that much different. But what Isaiah is saying here is that is so wrong, so dead wrong. The Lord himself through Isaiah says that his thoughts are not our thoughts, and our ways are not his ways. He is the creator. We're his creatures. We cannot even begin to imagine the magnitude of the gulf between him and us. Added to that difference is the fact that we are sinful creatures in open rebellion against him. That expands that gulf by quantum levels even further. So we should not expect God to either think like us nor act like us. His ways and thoughts are not our ways and thoughts. And in order to help us comprehend the significance of this contrast, the Lord, through Isaiah, gives us an analogy to regard the exaltedness of his word. He says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. He's not talking about spatially higher. Now that we've gone to the moon and send launches all over the universe, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about higher in the sense of honor, respect. They're so far beyond our comprehension, just like the heavens are higher than the earth and different, radically different. And when we begin to grasp this truth, it should cause us to ask a question. How can we, mere creatures, sinful creatures at that, ever hope to come to know God, let alone know of his favor and of his compassion. 
When we start to grapple with that question, we're beginning to understand the vast gap that exists between God and us. And then we'll be able to apprehend and appreciate the next analogy that Isaiah gives us regarding the effectiveness of God's word in verses 10 and 11. And change that. Sorry. I wish you all could understood, understand Hebrew. This is unbelievably structured Hebrew parallelism. It's wonderful uh, to look at and, and appreciate. But the point of this second analogy is not, as was the case with the first analogy, to express the difference between God and us. Rather, this analogy is given so that we might understand the effectiveness of God's word to reveal who he is to us, to show us what he's like. His thoughts and ways are not ours. He must reveal himself before to ever comprehend who he is. Otherwise, we would never know him and what he's like. We would never know of his amazing grace. We know there's a creator and that's it. But here Isaiah says the the rain and snow fall down from heaven and they don't return until they've done what God has intended them to do. They water the earth. They soften it so that things can grow. That there can be life. If this was a desert planet, think about how hard it would be to exist. But God sends the rain and the snow. And it accomplishes what he sends it to do. And he says his word is the same. It does what he wants it to do. It accomplishes what he sent it to do. It brings him delight when it does that as well, it says. The word for accomplish here is the word most often used in connection with God's creative power. When God speaks at creation and all that is comes into being, that's God's word's power to do what he says it's going to do. And the word that's used here and translated achieve the purpose is one word in Hebrew. It means bring to successful completion. Among other things, from the context, I believe that the purpose for which God has sent his word and in which he delights is to reveal himself so that we might know him and the wonder of who he is, not just as the creator, but as a God of compassion and grace. Without his word, we'd never know that. Thanks be to God that we have his word. That's why the Apostle Paul can say in Romans 1, 16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written. But the righteous man shall live by faith. As we hear the wonder of the gospel... It's as we hear that, that we begin to understand who God is. Something that would never be possible left up to our own devices. That's why the word of God, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation. Because it's as we hear the gospel that we come to know the wonder of God's saving grace in Christ. Our thoughts would never be able to comprehend the wonder of God's saving grace. That's why he has had to reveal himself to us in the gospel. All that we can do is stand in awe, in faith, at what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. But then the passage closes with another strange reference to the future and the restoration that will happen there. 
It ends in another picture of future restoration, a picture of a recreation brought about by the Word. Just as initially God speaks and all that is comes into being, He creates it. Here He's going to speak again and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And look what happens when God speaks the gospel. He says, you will go out with joy and you will be led forth in peace. To understand what's being said here, you have to go back to the beginning of the Bible. To how God created man to live in his presence with joy. But that was lost when Adam and Eve sinned. Pain and suffering and frustration and worry and self-centeredness and strife became the norms of human existence. And here Isaiah, looking into the distant future, sees God restoring all things by his redemptive grace. And the first thing he sees involves the restoration of God's people to a status of joy and peace. God's people will go out in joy. The picture here is of gladness that just bubbles over. I wish we had time to look at a whole bunch of passages in Scripture that talks about this. This is exuberant joy. This isn't, oh, I'm happy now. This is happy that just causes you to shout to God and joy. This restoration and the accomplishing joy is accomplished by the gospel. Christ bringing those dead in their sins to life. This is why we read of joy in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, in language that echoes that of Isaiah 55. And you can look at Revelation chapter 21 the first six verses, and I just want to read the last verse so that you hear the words of Isaiah here in the last book of the Bible. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of the water of life without cost. That's what Christ comes to do, to give us springs of water of life without cost. It's the joy of the gospel. Talk about a picture of restoration and of God's grace. But it's not just that we're led forth in joy. We're led forth in praise and peace. And here again, you have to go back to the beginning of the Bible. Peace in Scripture is not just the absence of war. It's restored fellowship with God. Adam and Eve walked with God day by day without any problem. And peace is the restoration of that fellowship with the living God. That's accomplished only by what Jesus has done on the cross. You can look at Ephesians 2, where Paul tells us that he is our peace. Jesus is our peace. He's established peace by the blood of his cross. That's so that we can go out in peace with God. We can enter into his presence with joy, not fear. But then there's this picture of the restoration of creation. It doesn't end with the joy and the peace of God's people. Amazing as that is. It extends on to creation itself. And images that go beyond imagination as they strain to express the wonder of creation restored before the fall. It says the mountains and the hills will burst forth into song before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands before you. We used to live in Colorado. And I used to love to look at the mountains. And there's, there's days I could hear them singing, in a sense. It's just the wonder of God's creation. And here he paints this picture of mountains and hills just breaking forth into song. 
forests just clapping their hands. What is he saying with this? Once again, we have to be reminded, God's thoughts and ways are not our thoughts and ways. We tend to limit God's work of redemption to our souls, human beings, that's it. But the effects of the fall cover every aspect of creation, so God's redeeming grace has to restore every aspect of creation. And here's a picture of creation itself being released from the curse. And what's creation do? It just worships the Lord in exuberant praise. Singing, clapping. Picture of all creation engaged in exuberant praise. Because God has restored all of all things because of his redeeming grace. The picture of all creation overwhelmed with joyous celebration because of God's redeeming grace. Here again, I have to ask, how often do we simply burst forth into song? about the wonder of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone? Does it cause us to sing to God? And although it might make us uncomfortable as Presbyterians, how often do we simply clap our hands with joy because of the salvation that's ours in Christ? People clap their hands at a goal scored at a football match. (laughs) This is way more than that. God has redeemed us by his grace. We need to praise him in exuberant joy. And then Isaiah goes on and pictures the creation where instead of thorns and briars, there's going to be lush, verdant growth. What's he talking about here? Again, we have to go back to the beginning of the Bible. When Adam and Eve sinned, it wasn't just that they were cursed. The ground itself was cursed. Thorns come up. Weeds come up. Life is hard. And the picture here is of a restored creation. The curse has been removed. There's no more thorns. There's no more weeds. I love to garden. I can't wait for this day. (laughs) You don't have to go out and weed your garden. It's a picture of a restored creation that only the grace of God can accomplish. Our minds simply cannot comprehend what creation would be like with the effects of sin removed, since all we have ever known is a world under the curse, a life of struggle, of pain, of suffering, of thorns, of thistles, of tears, and death. Indeed, our ways and thoughts are not God's ways and thoughts. But thanks be to God that he has given us pictures in his word that we might catch glimpses of the reality that awaits us. Pictures that give us hope and joy in the midst of this suffering world. And then the last, Isaiah just tells us that it's going to be for the Lord's renown. It's going to be for his glory. As he restores all things, all creation worshiping him. God's people in joy at his presence. God's name is going to be restored to its rightful place. So he ends this amazing chapter about the gospel with this picture of all of creation restored worshiping him as you think back over this chapter what's missing here Isaiah 55 is not about what we must do it's about the gospel it's about God's grace 
It's about what amazing things God is going to do by his grace. It's a call for each of us to simply delight in the gospel. To let it pour into our wounded and thirsty souls. And to bring healing and restoration. We need to let it restore us to the joy of our salvation. Give us hope that God is bringing all things to his desired realization. And it's my prayer that in this coming year, you might drink deeply, day by day, of the gospel of God's grace. And let it transform you and bring you joy to the praise of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.